Welcome to the Kanoi Church Podcast. We're glad that you're interested in connecting through this teaching time. If you'd like to connect further, feel free to reach out to us through our website, kanoichurch.org. For now, enjoy this teaching from Kanoi Church, where our mission is to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, let's jump in here to Mark chapter 15. If you guys have a Bible, you can open that up. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the chairs, some of the chairs, most of the chairs. Uh, If they're not most of the chairs anymore, I guess we've got to start buying new Bibles, which is a good problem. Somebody should probably tell me, though. Um, Need more Bibles. Okay. I guess we've got to get some more Bibles. Um. We're on the second to last chapter of Mark. And so here's the honest truth. Today's adventure of Jesus of Nazareth is kind of a dark adventure, okay? Um, Last week was the arrest of Jesus. It was the sham of a trial by the Sanhedrin. And so today is going to be Jesus going before Pilate and then the crucifixion. So it's not, it's not an exciting, um, fun, miracles, healings sort of chapter. Uh, this, is, this is hard, gut-wrenching sort of stuff. Um, this, is, this is the chapter that is going to leave the disciples feeling like they just got all the wind knocked out of them, okay? Um, this is hard. If you remember from last week, the Sanhedrin had this trial, and the Sanhedrin is sort of this council and uh, court, is a a good way to think of it, of the religious leaders. And they have a number of rules that they have to follow if somebody comes before them that they need to sentence. And they broke just about every rule that they had to follow, okay? Okay? And that's sort of where the chapter ends. Now, we're going to pick it up, and one of the things we're going to see right off the bat is the Sanhedrin had uh, sentenced Jesus to death. But the Sanhedrin doesn't have the power to carry out a death sentence. And that's a problem, okay? So they sentence Jesus to death, but they can't do it. So they have to find a way to get the Romans to carry out the death sentence that they want. And that's sort of where we're going to pick up this story. So we're going to start in uh, chapter 15, verse 1. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus and led him away and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply. And Pilate was amazed. Now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. 
A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate. Knowing that it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest had stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder. Crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. We'll pause there. Sort of a really sad picture here, right? Pilate's the Roman authority. He he governed this area longer than anyone else did. Um, So the chief priests and tax collectors... Uh, I'm sorry, the chief priests um, and the whole Sanhedrin, the teachers of the law, the elders, they bind Jesus, they lead him away to hand him over to Pilate. And the accusation that they bring is that he's the king of the Jews. He's declared himself king, okay? No one can be king but Caesar. But this is the thing that they bring to the Roman authorities that they think will potentially carry enough weight that will get him in trouble. And this is why Pilate questions him. So are you the king of the Jews? Well, Jesus responds, you say that I am. Pilate doesn't buy any of it. You can read that right here. Pilate knows that the reason that Jesus has been brought is because of the self-interest of these spiritual authorities. But the crowd that is there is there requesting Barabbas. Barabbas. You know, we don't know much about Barabbas. We can look at as many historical documents as we can possibly find, and there's not much that we can find about Barabbas outside of this. We do know that there's sort of these sects, and some of them are secret sects of insurrectionists. There's one called the Sicarii, which is a word that means dagger carrier. And they were insurrectionists, they were nationalists, and they were fierce um, nationalists, and they would use their daggers any chance they could get. They were sort of small hidden daggers, and they would assassinate people that were not trying to promote the Jewish cause. Um, There's a good chance Barabbas may have been one of them. They tried to lead an uprising that failed, which is what got him put into prison, A lot of people will point out, my, it's been only a matter of hours, really, a day or two, since Jesus entered Jerusalem. And all of that fanfare, right? Hosanna, palm branches, riding like royalty coming into the city. And now we have a crowd chanting, crucify him. Give us Barabbas. Why, it's so very different, right? It's probably two different crowds. I mean, 
sham of a trial that Jesus had by the Sanhedrin took place at night when it wasn't allowed, when most of the people that would have welcomed Jesus are probably sleeping. Now he goes before Pilate and the crowd that goes with them are probably people that these teachers of the law and the Sanhedrin and the chief priests and the elders, those are people that they've probably gathered. And the other people that are there are probably Barabbas's supporters because of this custom to release back a prisoner, right? So it's the people who want to get Barabbas out of prison. People that, it says, approached Pilate saying, we want Barabbas. So it's not the same crowd that welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem that shows up here at Pilate's. This crowd chooses some interesting things when you think about it. It chooses lawless, lawlessness over law. Or if I want to put it even more bluntly, it chooses lawlessness over the lawgiver, doesn't it? It chooses war over peace. When Pilate says, okay, if you want Barabbas, what do I do with this other person that you call the king of the Jews? The crowd could have said many things, but what they shout is crucify him. They choose war over peace. They choose hatred over love. Barabbas literally stands for the way of violence, the, the way of the dagger. Jesus stands for the way of love. Jesus has led a life that has been to promote healing and forgiveness, miracles, teaching. Barabbas has been one to promote uprising, overthrowing the government, been part of an assassination, and right here we read that he committed murder. That's what landed him in prison. They choose violence over love. This crowd makes clear choices. And what we find out is at the base of the crowd, the folks that are guiding and urging the crowd are the spiritual leaders. So, so for a moment, I just want to remind you, in previous chapters we've talked about, Jesus said, beware the way of the Pharisee. It's a way of power. It's not a way of love. It's a way of power. It's a fig tree with leaves and no fruit. It's one of flowing robes that prevent you from doing any good because the robes are so nice and so flowing, but you're trapped in them and you can't do any work in the community. It's a way of whitewashed tombs where the tombs look pretty, but underneath it's just dead bones. And so now here in this moment, while Jesus stands before Pilate and Pilate knows this whole thing is a sham and Pilate's like, Come on. So you want Barabbas? Fine. 
but what do you want me to do with Jesus, the one you call King of the Jews? And the crowd shouts, crucify him. And Pilate says, but he's done nothing wrong. And the, the crowd shouts, crucify him. We can read right here in scripture that the folks who are guiding the crowd with their fingers playing puppet master, it's the spiritual leaders that Jesus has been warning his disciples about the whole way. Don't choose that way. That is the way of death. At the end of this section, what we find is that Jesus gets flogged, which we may not completely understand. But I, I just want you to know that flogging is when you take a person and you bend them so that their back is taut. So bend them over, their back is taut. A flog would be, some, think of like a whip. It's a long piece of leather, and in the leather embedded in it are pieces of bone or stone and uh, lead, and then the person is struck with that, and it tears their back open. Um, sometimes they would lose an appendage, like an eye, or if the leather wraps around their face. Um, some people died while being flogged. They couldn't survive that. People lost consciousness. Some people went insane from the pain of it. But it was brutal. And first, Jesus was flogged before anything else happened. Okay? And so this was the beginning of Jesus' brutal treatment. And I'm, I'm not going, just so you know, my plan is not to get into the brutality of every single thing that happened to Jesus, but I do want you to know that it's sort of almost a footnote. As Mark goes through, it's like, here's this terrible like, trial, and Pilate's like, we hand him over to get flogged before we go on to the next thing, but just know this awful thing happened right here before anything else happened. This awful thing happened that a lot of people die from before any of the rest of it happened. So Jesus is already really hurt, okay? Um, he'd be in the ICU in our day and age from this alone before anything else that we're about to read happens to him, okay? So know that. Now let's, let's just read the next uh, section here, starting at verse 16. Uh, the soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. They began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. Um, to be honest, Roman soldiers probably mocked every single prisoner that they ever crucified. So no exception for Jesus here. Um, they probably especially mocked any Jew that they had uh, to crucify uh, because there wasn't a lot of respect for Jewish religion. The focus of their mocking is the accusation 
that Jesus is being met with. He's the king of the Jews. So a purple robe, purple is the color of royalty. That's why they place the robe on him. That's why they place the crown of thorns on his head. It's to mimic his kingship, okay? Um, I don't have a lot to say. It's terrible. He's already been hurt beyond belief. And now he's being spit on. He's being struck on the head over and over. Um, can't imagine the level of injuries that he has at this point. I'm sure there's probably medical studies that have been done that try to capture how hurt Jesus is at this point, if we had to guess. Um, one of the things I think we can, the right way to say this is, is to try and take some solace in Jesus warned over and over to his disciples that there would be those that would come along and mock the ones that follow him. That there would be those who would come along and uh, metaphorically spit on the Christian faith. And if you go ahead and read the epistles in the New Testament, you'll see Peter and Paul and, and other writers also reference the fact that there will be folks who will persecute followers of Christ for their faith. If you look at some of the things that have been unearthed in the archaeological dig of the city of Pompeii, uh, Pompeii was buried in the first century by the eruption of Mount Vesuvius. They have unearthed drawings on the wall of people who have um, drawn, like graffitied, people making fun of Christians. <laughs> Christians worshiping donkeys. This is so-and-so worshiping their God in the picture of a Christian kneeling by a donkey. The persecution of Christians has always been it was happening as soon as Christianity was founded. It was warned about in our scriptures. It probably has happened to you at some point in your life. Somebody has made a comment about your faith. It may happen to you yet again. It happened to Jesus first. And it happened to Jesus worse than it happened to you. I don't know if that, if that provides solace for you. Um, something that has helped me at different times in my life is knowing that whatever path I've walked, Jesus walked it first. And that doesn't have to just be persecution. It can be loss, it can be pain, it can be triumph. But knowing that Jesus walked it first is, is often a help. And so in the moments where you feel struck down, know that Jesus was struck down first. What they did to Jesus is worse than whatever they may do to us. In some ways, it helps me to know that 
in the midst of my pain, Jesus is there with me. Verse 21, a certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. When they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Oh, sorry, then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, and they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their head and saying, so you, who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself? Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. The process of crucifixion would sort of go like this. Four soldiers would surround the one being crucified. Uh, there'd be one in the front, one on each side, one in the back. The person being crucified would be in the middle. Um, the person in the middle being crucified would have to carry their cross. The soldier in the front would carry a sign, and on the sign was written the charges that they were convicted of so that they would be known. Uh, so it was clear why this person was being crucified. That crime, that sign, would later be nailed to the cross where they were crucified so that if anybody walked by at a later date, then there was no question as to why this person had been executed. And it would be a warning. The criminal carried the cross, and the longest route would be taken to the place of execution. Not just the longest route, but the longest indirect route. So they would go on every possible street that would be possible so that it passed, you passed by as many people and homes as possible as a warning to every citizen possible not to commit whatever crime the criminal had been charged with. Simon from Cyrene. Uh, Cyrene is a place in Africa. Uh, we don't, again, know much about him. We can only guess. Coming from Africa, probably had saved up a really long time to make the journey into the city for Passover. May have been a once-in-a-lifetime trip for him um, to experience Passover in Jerusalem. And then to be in the city, maybe for the first time and the only time in his life for Passover, and for the Romans to tap you on the shoulder with their spear and force you to carry the cross for a criminal would certainly ruin your Passover experience. It is interesting for him to be mentioned as the father of Alexander and Rufus, because it's like we're supposed to know who that is then, you know. Um, the name Rufus is mentioned again in, in Romans. And so 
Again, speculation, but there's a good chance that Simon of Cyrene's life changed after this. Maybe he never went back to Cyrene. Maybe he stayed. Maybe this changed everything, and that's why Rufus ends up in Rome. And why Paul, addressing his letter to the Romans, mentions, send my greetings to Rufus. Because the son of Simon of Cyrene ends up becoming a Christian and in Rome. Speculation, I don't know. But the fact that Rufus shows up in two places, that does say something to most scholars that read this. Um, Simon carries the cross because Jesus can't. That's the only reason that he would have been tapped on. Jesus has been flogged, beaten in the head. He must not be physically able to carry this huge wooden cross at this point. He's gotten so far on the most indirect route to Golgotha, and he can no longer bear the weight. And so the Roman guards, the four who are surrounding him, have literally taken a spear, and they've taken the flat part of the spear and tapped somebody who's in the crowd on the shoulder, happens to be Simon, and said, you carry it. And he has no choice but to comply. And he carries it the rest of the way. And Jesus is dragged, stumbles behind through the crowd uh, all the way to Golgotha, where he is hung on the cross, nailed to the cross. Commonly, at the site of execution, at the site of crucifixion, there's a group of women, well-meaning women, who would offer wine to criminals being executed. And the wine had myrrh in it, and it was um, sort of a, a pain reducer. Um, Jesus did not take that. Jesus is going to see this through to the end. It's interesting to me, as Jesus is hanging on the cross, the thing that the jeerers are saying is get down. That's the proof that you're God. If you could just get down from the cross, then we'd believe. That's the measure of power. If you could just get off the cross then we'd believe you'd have power. See, that's the opposite, though. When I think about it, when I consider the measure of power, it's not his ability to get off the cross that shows that he's God. It's his ability to stay on the cross. Because if he could get off the cross, wouldn't any single one of us do that? Any single one of us would at any time go, okay, I've, I've had it, all right? I, I can bear no more. I, can, I am done. I have had my fill. And, flogged, all right, two, two flogs, I'm done, done. So maybe one of us gets through the flogging, but the first time we get beat in the head, we're like, okay, I'm not doing the concussion thing again. I'm out, right? We, we give up. Getting off the cross doesn't show power. It it shows our 
lack of power. It shows our lack of willingness to keep going. Staying on the cross shows the power. It shows the depth of love. It shows the willingness of Christ to continue to see this thing through. It, it shows the depth of God's love, right? I, and and that's, that's how I look at it. And so as, as they yell at him and say, we won't believe unless you get off the cross, it's like God saying, you're missing it because the only way to show you who God is, who, how deep my love is, what it means for my love to put on flesh and come here is for Jesus to stay on the cross. That's how deep my love is. It's the willingness for the father to step between me and the lion. And not just for the lion to come jumping and the father to go, just kidding. Right? For the father to stay there and take on the lion. Staying on the cross shows the depth of the love of God. Staying on the cross shows the power of God. It shows us that there is no place that Jesus would not go for you and for me. When Jesus tells the parable of the 99 and the one that is gone, he doesn't ask the question, what will the shepherd do when the one is missing because it's a, it's a question that no one has the answer to. It's a no-brainer question. Of course the shepherd is gonna go after the one missing sheep. And he's gonna go wherever he needs to go to get the one missing sheep. Wherever. However far. Whatever it takes. However deep. Wherever. In Philippians, when Paul describes the Spirit of God, when Paul describes what attribute of God he wants his people to take on, his community, his church to take on, he says, Jesus came from heaven. He left the right hand of God, the throne room of heaven, put on flesh, became human, became an obedient servant, Obedient even unto death, even unto the death of a criminal. That is how far the love of God is willing to go. So it's not about getting off the cross. It's not about that. And if you want to bookend it, if you want to go back in Scripture and you want to really think about how to tie it all up in a neat little bow, then if this is the end of Jesus's human ministry, because Jesus is about to get a heavenly body, right? So let's say this is the end of Jesus's totally human ministry. Let's go back to the very beginning of Jesus's human ministry where Satan tempted him. Satan tempted him by saying, hey, throw yourself off the top of a temple because if you do that, you can just call a whole bunch of angels down here to make sure that your, your foot never strikes a stone. Use all that power. Just use the power. 
Make sure you don't get hurt. You can do that. You're God. And Jesus says, no. That's not what my power is for. My power is not power over. My power is power under. My power is power for others. Coming down off the cross would have been power over. But by staying on the cross, it is the ultimate power for everyone else. He died for all of us. Every single one of us. Power for. Jesus saw that through to the very end. Could he have taken a legion of angels at any time? <laughs> yeah, because he had the power, but he chose not. Father, take this cup from me, but not my will. Yours be done. Ultimate submission to the Father's will. Thank God. Verse 33, at noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now, leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood there in front of Jesus, saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. It says something that even the sky darkened at this moment. I told you in the very, very beginning that Mark is very concerned with the cosmic events, the cosmicness of the life of Christ. The sky darkens when Jesus dies. I think, I think this line is interesting. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A couple of ways you can read that. One way, and I think probably the way that many people have heard it read and have grown up hearing it read is that God turned his face away. And we sing a hymn that way, right? There's a, a famous hymn that says, and the father turned his face away. And so this is the moment maybe where all of the sin that Jesus has taken on from the entire world is, is borne out upon Jesus. And so here is, is where that happens and, and Jesus is alone. I'd, you can read it that way if you want. It's fine. That's not how I read it. And I'll tell you how I read it. Uh, and if you don't like how I read it, that's okay too. You know, that's what we do here. Um, if you notice here, in your Bible, there will be a little footnote. 
it tells you that Jesus is actually quoting Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you flip over to Psalm 22. See, I think this is kind of a beautiful thing. If we read our Bibles and we pay really close attention to what Scripture is doing, it can show us some things that are like pretty amazing. So Psalm 22 Again, if you read it, like this is the moment when the, all the sin of the world is born upon Jesus and the Father turns his face away. That's totally fine. No problem, okay? But if you want to look at it this way, this is how I look at it. Because in some ways, when Jesus dies, that's the moment that I think all of the sin is born upon him. That's when he's separated from God in my, in my mind. Psalm 22, 1 says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is what Jesus is saying. This is the quote. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then you go on. It says, why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. How many people have felt that way? How many people have like had seasons where they felt that way, days and weeks where they felt that way, years where they felt that way? Here's the cool thing about Psalm 22. Psalm 22 goes back and forth where it has a stanza where it says, why have you forsaken me? And the next verse says, and yet you are enthroned on heaven. And yet... You were the one Israel praises. In you, our ancestors put their trust. They trusted you and, they, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were saved. In you they trusted and they were not put to shame. It goes back and forth. All the way through Psalm 22. Indeed, if Jesus is quoting Psalm 22, 1, it would almost be is to make us look at Psalm 22. It would almost be as a reminder to anybody who was there watching and listening to remember that though in this moment, though in this moment, that it may feel like the Lord has turned his face away, like there is no hope, hope yet remains. Israel still puts their trust in the one above, that they cried out and they were saved, that they trusted and they were not put to shame. And that they're gonna go back and forth because the next stanza is that I'm forsaken and then the next stanza, stanza is I trusted and was saved. And then the next stanza oh, is I'm forsaken. And then the next stanza and what did the disciples do? What did we learn from the other gospels? They, they gave up. They went back to fishing, right? They went through this process. What is Psalm 23? Psalm, Psalm 23 is the Lord is my shepherd. I, I mean, come on. 
If we really want to look hard at Psalms 22.1, Psalms 22.1 is almost this moment of hope. And when I look at Jesus crying out on the cross, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? It's almost like this final moment where he's telling those who have gathered, it might feel like the Father has turned his face away. Trust. It's not over. It's not over. Because though this is power under for all of you, the good Lord has the power over all. Trust. This is not the end. Trust. We learn as Jesus dies, the curtain is torn in the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies is the place where the priest would go one time a year and only the priest could go. The curtain is torn, which means one now, we don't just need the priest to go, right? We don't need that intermediary. And there's no guessing anymore as to what behind, is behind the curtain, right? We, now we know what God looks like, Jesus. Last part of chapter 15. Starts at verse 42. It was preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Joseph, when it says that he is a member of the council, that means he's a member of the Sanhedrin. Okay? So the very group that condemned Jesus to death, Joseph is a part of that group. Jesus died at 3 p.m. There's very little time before the Passover. And if we get to the Passover, no work can be done. So Joseph of Arimathea acts as quickly as possible to go before Pilate, get the body, to get it buried, because if it gets too late, no work can be done, which means then Jesus' body is going to be left hanging on the cross for crim like criminals and thieves and scavengers, things like that, okay? So um, Mark has a lot of details about the Sanhedrin. It's possible that Joseph is actually his inside man for that. When he goes to write his gospel, maybe Joseph of Arimathea is the one who gives Mark all the details about the Sanhedrin. We don't really know. We don't have a lot of information. Again, another character. We don't have a lot of information about Joseph of Arimathea. What we do know is Joseph of Arimathea doesn't speak up on Jesus' behalf at the trial. At all. He is the man who got Jesus a tomb. He is the man who got Jesus' body, which makes Jesus's, I mean, Joseph's story a sad one, but a common one. Because how often do we purchase the most beautiful flowers for people's funerals and sing their highest praises at their eulogies, but we fail to ever say it to their faces? It says Joseph was a man waiting for the kingdom of God. But he never 
made the time to connect with Jesus. And here's the thing. If you are one whose relationship with Jesus is one where you're waiting to buy the prettiest flowers and sing the highest praises until you meet him, you're missing out on something right now. Now is the time. Not when you meet him. Now is the time to have that relationship with Jesus. Joseph of Arimathea never had that chance that we know of. He waited for the kingdom of God and the bringer of the kingdom passed him by. He sentenced the bringer of the kingdom to death. Maybe he had the chance to be restored like Peter. I don't know. I hope. I hope. But it's not too late. It's not passed you by. And so if you are one who's waiting, stop waiting. Because today is the day, right now is the right time. Engage in that real relationship with Jesus now. Because, and I mean it, I mean it metaphorically, and I mean it in absolute reality, that lion is always around, and you have a Father in heaven who is so willing to simply stand between you and the lion. And one of the really wonderful things that I have found about years of church is that there is a whole lot of villagers who are willing to bring torches when you shout chumvois. <laughs> Not torches chasing after you. Torches to chase after that lion. That's one of the great things about being a part of church. And that's one of the great things about having a relationship with God. Stop waiting. Let's engage in real relationship with each other and with God because my goodness, we have so much to be thankful for. This is not just a story, my friends. This is not just a story that we've been reading over the last 15 weeks. This is real. And it is worth having a relationship with. Let's do it today. Amen? Hi, this is Pastor Nick. Thanks for listening. I hope something that you heard today was very helpful. If you want to connect with us further, feel free to check us out on Facebook, Instagram, or our website, kanoichurch.org. Sure, I'm glad we're in this together.